Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Good afternoon and a good morning to you, however you may be listening and wherever you may be listening. This is uh, the first in a new uh, era of the Man on the Post podcast, at least we hope it is. Last week was meant to be the first week of a new era of the Man on the Post podcast, but due to technical problems, it sort of never happened. So let's give it another go. For some reason, I've been decided to host. I wasn't made part of the decision, but let's run with it and see what happens. Um... We'll out with the new and in with the uh, somewhat old. Uh, we have Colin with us this week. Colin, how are you? Yeah, um, I'm not very new. I am quite old. Um, so, so, yeah, you pretty much hit the nail on the head there. Um, yes, not too bad, Matthew. Uh, yeah. a, a little bit chilly, as I'm sure everybody else is in, in the UK if they're, at the moment. The Arctic blast of the beast from the east. Yes. Yeah. Now the question is: Is the beast in the east affecting our other guest, who is making his second debut on the Man on the Post? It was meant to be his debut last week, but as we said, technical problems. These things happen. So let's call this his competitive debut, and last week was the friendly. Uh, let's give a big hand and a big warm welcome to the Man on the Post to James Rowe, joining us all the way from the mystical lands of Amsterdam. James, hello to you. Good evening, uh, fellas. How are you both? It is quite cold here in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Yes. Good. Have we got to the stage where, like the uh, Grolsch advert, the river has frozen over? So um, the pub with the four chairs can all go out onto the river? Uh, no, not yet. It's far, it was um, it kind of um, towards the uh, the first part of the morning. It was extremely chilly. And then it kind of eased off uh, um, late afternoon. So, uh, But they expect it to become uh, chilly again overnight. Okay. So James, obviously, as the somewhat, uh, as the newest member of the Man on the Post podcast. Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, uh, my name is James Rowe. I've been living and working in Amsterdam and the Netherlands for 12 years. I've been writing for three years for footballannual.com, where we publish all the latest Dutch football news, including pre-match interviews and post-match interviews. I also conduct uh, my own interviews with professional footballers and managers here. And I've spoken in the past to Ricky van Rolleswinkel, Swansea uh, City centre half Mike van der Horen, and uh, Bundesliga centre back from Augsburg, Jeffrey Gaoleu. So the names are getting a little bit bigger, and it's nice to conduct interviews with professional players and managers on a regular basis. So um, people are, are more than ha- are more than welcome to follow my uh, Twitter feed at James Rowanel to, to read all the latest news about Dutch football and uh, discover what names I've interviewed uh, in the recent past. Good. So we've added a bit of an international flavour to this somewhat uh, Luddite uh, podcast. We've now got an international feel, so we're all a bit more rounded, a bit more hipster as a result. But gentlemen, let us car- let us start with uh, the big news of the weekend, which was uh, Arsenal's uh, defeat to Manchester City. I'm leading it this way because you'll find out in a minute. Uh, in the Carabao Cup final, um, obviously... Uh, Manchester City, everyone expected to win. Everyone's expecting them to win four trophies. They uh, Now down to three as a result of uh, their defeat to Wigan last Monday. But my question and my sort of leading to this is on Arsenal, mainly mainly because we have James with us, the uh, Arsenal fan. And I was looking at the table today and seeing just how far off the pace Arsenal are. Not just for the Premier League title, which they are if my maths is right, 27 points off, but also the top four, which has always been their uh, saviour for the past couple of seasons. Um, you know, they've always had a bad season, not won anything, but the top four was considered a trophy. And they're 10 points off that as well, admittedly, with a game in hand. And my question is, is are we... Turn, let me start that again. Are we starting a period where we can no longer class Arsenal 
as one of the big teams in English football. Something that would have been unforeseeable, unthinkable a couple of years ago. Uh, James, I'll start with you. Just where has it gone wrong for Arsenal? Um, I think you can start at the top at board level. Uh, I've been an Arsenal fan for 30 years and I often uh, go to games um, in London from the Netherlands. I was at the Ostersons home game last Thursday and that was a bit of a shock to lose to Ostersons, although that was fully deserved. A fantastic performance from Ostersons. And, and, and let's just say a weakened side by Arsenal as well. I don't think the yeah. first team quite would have done that badly. No, but I think the uh, the attitude was the thing that struck me. I mean, yeah. the Ostens were 3-0 down from the first leg and they came to London with a game plan and they executed that really, really well. I think the problem stemmed at board level. And years ago, Arsenal would have competent board members that were not only competent in, in their dealings behind the scenes, but they also had the, um, the best interest of, of the club at heart. And at the moment, we seem to have lost our way, uh, coupled with a manager who although he's done absolutely fantastic things, has uh, ultimately too much power and too much say in many, many things. I mean, he sat on boards to um, to acquire people at board level and to have them on when in other organisations that would be unthinkable. Uh, I think his belief in players that are not quite good enough is unwavering at times and can be quite frustrating. And... Um, Full credit to Manchester City in their League Cup uh, final win. It was fully deserved. But I thought that Arsenal didn't come with a game plan. We lacked belief as well. And uh, it would have been nice for Arsene Wenger to complete a domestic set. But um, to be 10 points off the pace with a game in hand and, uh, and, uh, and with fans that are baying for blood and the atmosphere wasn't great against Ostersund last Thursday and you just you just hope that you can um, go as far as you can in the Europa League although the AC Milan tie over two legs is going to be very difficult especially with the form that they're in and uh, AC Milan are unbeaten in 12 games and firing on all cylinders and um, yeah I just hope that they can um, uh, try to put in a good performance from now to the end of the season and regroup in the summer and look and study about the best way to go forward. Yeah, Colin, um, you uh, uh, didn't manage to watch the game live on Sunday. I think you had to catch up. But I'm sure the sort of the Gary Neville comments, uh, you must have heard about the Gary Neville comments, uh, criticising um, about Arsenal being spineless and having the wrong attitude, you know, walking around during a Wembley final. Sort of as an out, because you, you yourself are not an Arsenal fan, can you sort of pinpoint, not, not to the same accuracy as James, but where do you think, it's all gone wrong for, for the Arsenal. Well, um, my, my first point would be, I, I'd actually question that because I, I think, I think it's a little bit harsh to say it's all gone wrong at Arsenal. I think, I think at the moment they're sort of, um, easy meat. There's always, um, someone who always gets the blame. So for example, when Liverpool go through a bad run of form, Klopp seems to never get the blame. Yeah, you know, a few bad results and, you know, Wenger has got to go. Do you know what I mean? He's past his best. So I, I just think Arsenal are flavour of the month for, you know, the guys who get beat up. So I don't think it's as bad as all that. Um, but it's right. still not the same Arsenal that we, you know, you go go back 10 years, you know, off the back of the Invincibles and then picture Arsenal 27 points off what has been, you know, arguably the greatest uh, Premier League side that anyone's ever seen in Manchester City, but 10 points off fourth place, no, in sixth. Some, again, something that would have been unheard of and unthinkable about 10 years ago. Yeah, but then, you know, 10 years ago, where were Manchester City? Were they in the second division? Third, maybe. I, I, do, Ten years you know ago, they I mean? were in the Premier League. Let's not get. Let's go. Let's not. Let, let's not get too hasty. But I, I see your point. But let's not get. Well, no, no. But I mean, I, I'm, I'm referring back to the fact that you know our Arsenal dropping out of the like the top four. I mean, Manchester City never made up the top four. So if they join in there, someone's got to drop out. But I, I, I just think that maybe it's getting a little bit overplayed. However, you mentioned the Gary Neville comments and you know about you know um the players 
walking and potentially spineless. I think that's a bit harsh. I don't think anybody goes into a cup final uh, wanting to be like that. What I would have liked to have seen, and, and maybe I'm showing my colours here as a Leeds fan. I'm not saying that uh, I'm a dirty Leeds fan, but, uh, you know, I saw an opportunity for Arsenal to sort of get a little bit more angry. You know, Jack Wilshire seemed to be getting a hell of a lot of beatings, right? They were t- taking him down, you know, pretty bad challenges. And that should have riled up a few of the players, but it just didn't seem, it seemed there wasn't that pilot light to sort of like start everything up again. Um, so, as James said, I think there is problems at the top, but there's problems on the pitch as well. What I would say is I'm not entirely sure that the problem lies with Wenger. And if you swap him out and put someone else in, whether things are, I, don't, I don't really think things are going to change overnight yeah there are sometimes as as i've said many times before whenever a team's going through a bad spell it's not always the manager's fault sometimes the players have to have to look at themselves i mean even, uh, going back to when um frank de boer was in charge of crystal palace you know he had his idea he had his you know frank de boer set up with set up with an idea it's not his fault that I think it was uh, um, James Tompkins missed from five yards out an open goal against Burnley. So it's not always the manager's fault. The players do have to take some slack for it. And you mentioned Jack Wilshire there. And Jack Wilshire seems to be getting somewhat of a free pass. I, I wouldn't call it a complete free pass, but somewhat of a free pass because he embodies what Arsenal fans sort of want. Someone, again, someone who's putting in that um, desire, that work rate. James, is does Jack Wilshere get a free pass from you in that in that sense, or is he the only one? Is are there other players who have sort of escaped the or can get a free pass from the criticism? Um, from my point of view, looking at it as a, an Arsenal fan, the fact that the the failure to work as a collective unit is for me the, the one of the biggest problems. I've seen Arsenal on five occasions live this season, four times in the Premier League and once in the Europa League. And communication levels in the defence appear to be non-existent at times. And and whether you're a left-sided defender or a central defender, communication is key. And there are times when the simple instructions to your fellow teammate are not coming through. There's not... no leadership in terms of, of organisation of the back line. I think Arsenal fans are, um, are latching on to us, to uh, Jack Wiltshire, because he's showing a lot of heart and they feel upset and disappointed that the, the situation the club find themselves in. I also agree with you both. It's not everything, it's not all down to Arsene Wenger. The players also have to take responsibility, but Wenger hasn't helped himself by uh, not acquiring the correct players and in my personal opinion like with Suarez to go in with a with a, a naive bid uh, and not to get him if you'd have gone in with a serious bid at, at that specific time then that could have made all the difference and and the thing with Arsene Wenger is he will never bring out an offer of uh, of market value he will always bring out his own personal offer as to what he thinks the player is worth. And nine times out of ten, that's always rejected by the, um, by the selling club, and rightly so, because they hold their uh, their player in high regard. But I think um, I think Arsenal fans are hurting, because, but also you can understand fans of, of, of lesser clubs who, uh, who think that some Arsenal supporters are acting like spoiled children in terms of, you know, uh, lots of cup finals and European football and uh, brand spanking new stadium for the last uh, for the last 12 years. I can understand their point of view also, but from my point of view as being a fan for 30 years and having ambitions for Arsenal to make inroads in Europe and and try to uh, to win the league title again. When I look at a Bayern Munich and a Real Madrid and um, an Ajax here in, here in the Netherlands. These these clubs will always try to change things if they see things going wrong. Like, for example, uh, Marcel Kaiser was doing a reasonable job at Ajax this season when he took over from Peter Boss. He wasn't doing a bad job at all. You could see signs of life. 
but due to the um, inconsistencies, the board decided to replace him with, with uh, the, F- the then FC Utrecht manager, Eric Den Haag. And um, so it's, it's certain clubs wanting to put um, things in place in order to improve. And, and you can understand that. And um, I think Arsenal supporters are hoping that that will happen for them in the future as well. Yeah, I'm just looking. I'm just looking through the sort of Arsenal squad at the moment, and you mentioned about you no, know, there's no lack of leadership. Um, I can't really see any sort of captains um, jumping out at me. But one of the also think um, that um, back in the Arsenal heyday, there was always that sort of, uh, and I don't want to sound too sort of near about it, but there was always that sort of French element to it. Like you had Petit and Vieira at centre back. Mm. Um, Arsene Wenger obviously the manager and I'm just looking at there's no real sort of collective group of players you've got so many nationalities spring, like across the back four it would be Bellerin who's a Spaniard Mustafi a German Koscielny a Frenchman and Kalasinac a Bosnian yeah. is that sort of a crucial thing you don't have anyone because they're all four different languages to yeah. start off with is that something that's maybe the problem is Possibly. they can't really understand each other Possibly, I read I read a quote from Petrček where he states that he speaks three to uh, two to three languages per game to his back line. Um, I've watched Koscielny play live as a captain, and I I don't think I've heard him shout once or gesticulate once. And even if he does do it, it's far too late. And um, I don't think Arsene Wenger has helped himself in selecting the correct captain because if you go back into recent history. Uh, there was rumours regarding Fabregas leaving and um, Wenger gave him the captaincy. Uh, the same with uh, Robin van Persie. Uh, rumours of him leaving, Wenger gave him the captaincy. And um, and you, that's not the best way of doing things. You need to identify a player who's got this quality. I mean, Tony Adams was Arsenal, became Arsenal captain at 21 years old. And uh, that would be unheard of now, but Tony had to that role like a duck to water and uh, he showed values and he showed heart and he took to the role and he grew in it and became one of the greatest Arsenal captains of all time. And um, so I think Wenger should look at um, identifying a captain and, and regardless of age, regardless of nationality, um, let someone fulfil that role to bring to bring the team together. Like, for example, from my point of view, people talk about a, uh, a defensive midfielder for Arsenal in the summer. I think the biggest, um, uh, the biggest hole to fill is a, is a commanding centre-half who will be able to cajole a defence and organise a defence. And there's some, uh, there's some big work to be done in that back line. And um, it's just a case of um, Wenger signed a two-year deal last summer. There's one, there's one year left. How do you go into the last year in terms of attracting new players? When you approach new players, they might think, well, you might only be there for one year. Do I want to sign for you? To give you both a, a, a tremendous case from my point, there's a, the right back of Monaco, uh, Jibril Sidibe. He uh, was approached by Arsene Wenger to sign for Arsenal last summer. Jibril Sidibe is a tremendous right-back, not just in an attacking sense, but more importantly, in a defensive sense. The bid was accepted by Monaco. Uh, it came to uh, player negotiations, and Arsene Wenger could not convince Jibril Sidibe that his future lay at Arsenal, hence why Sidibe remained with Monaco. And that's also an important thing. You can also... Tr- Trace that back to when Arsenal brought out a bid for Jamie Vardy. The bid was accepted by Leicester. It came to negotiations. And although Jamie Vardy did quote that the team ethic at Leicester and the brotherhood meant that he decided to stay, I'm personally convinced that it goes back to my previous point earlier tonight. I don't think Arsene Wenger managed to sell the club to him. Not in the case of Jamie Vardy, not in the case of uh, Jibril Sidibe of Monaco. And I think that's a little bit worrying going into uh, the summer transfer market. Okay, and you mentioned um, players like Fabregas and Van Persie, players who inevitably left in the end. And again, I'm just looking through, apart from Jack Wilshere, who's a free agent at the moment, um, Colin, I'll ask this to you. Um, Admittedly, Leeds would not be interested or probably couldn't afford anyone from Arsenal. But are there any sort of big-name players that Arsenal, you know, 
could sell because that's one of the things is they they don't have that big they don't have a big name player there at the moment the big the biggest thing they sort of globally they have at the moment is probably Aubameyang and he just turned up so is that is it a player personnel thing I don't necessarily believe that I mean you know people would have probably said that um, Oxlade Chamberlain wasn't all that, but uh, Liverpool paid forty million for him, wasn't it? Yeah, um, I think that was a, that was a two-way thing. I think he again he wanted to leave as well. Uh, so on top of that, but yeah, yeah, I get, but I do take your point. Yeah, it's 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 a difficult one. I, I just think that you know we keep referring, especially with Arsenal, to. And I'm a Leeds fan as well, so look, I I, I I do this as well. You refer to the good old days, you know. It's, it it all almost sounds a little bit like West Ham. We want to play it the West Ham way. It's like I'd love another Billy Bremner, but you're not going to get Billy Bremner because he's dead, right? I'd love a Lucas Radaby, right? But you know his legs have gone, so you know you, you're not going to get another Tony Adams, right? You, you're not going to get players like Parler. Um, and I'm doing myself dis- uh, you know you bird camps and people people like that it's just it's not going to happen the game's changed so I, I I think there'd be plenty of people looking for Arsenal players I mean heck I mean what went on with Alexis Sanchez I know he you know he's a, he's a very good player but yeah, I, 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 again, I, I refer to my earlier point, my lord. Um, I don't think Arsenal are all that bad. I think there's pieces of the jigsaw missing, but I think most of it's there. Okay, I think that pretty much uh, ends the Arsenal debate. We don't want to turn this into Arsenal Fan TV 2.0 or Arsenal Fan Podcast 2.0. They have, I think, things to blazing gunners but whatever we don't want to do that so we'll move on to something more global and something that james is going to be a bit of an expert in because news has come out today that the much maligned in this country var the video assistant referees are are not going to be used in the champions league uh from next season uefa have come out and said that it causes uh, a lot of confusion uh admittedly you know it's it's good enough fifa who've said they're going to use it in the World Cup, and obviously it's still on trial stage here in England in selected in selected FA Cup and Carabao Cup games. Um, James, I'll put this to you, seeing as it's been used in the Netherlands for quite a while now. Um, have have people got used to VAR now? Is there still the confusion that we seem to have over in Britain? Um, here in the Netherlands, Matt, people are getting used. Uh, to VAR more and more. It first came to everybody's attention in a uh, Dutch Cup semi-final between FC Utrecht and Cambuur Leeuwarden back in 2015, uh, 2016, I believe. And um, yeah, people are getting more and more used to it uh, in terms of um, in terms of the nooks and crannies and the ins and outs. And um, yeah, what, what, what they want here is is, is fairness. They want, they're always looking to see how the game can be improved. And that's something that although the, um, the Dutch FA have been quite, um, have quite lax at national team level in terms of the, the choice for a new manager before Koeman was appointed, in terms of club football, they've always been quite... Um, I've always been quite hot in terms of making sure that everything fits properly. Like, for example, the health of the for club clubs in terms of finances. Like, for example, here, uh, clubs are financially kept an eye on in uh, by the Dutch FA in terms of their um, in terms of their books. If their uh, if their accounts do not match up, they get split into different financial categories in, in terms of supervision. And uh, if the constant um, if the constant threats are ignored, then a club can uh, can run the risk of having their license revoked. So um, I think VAR is just an extension of the Dutch FA willing to embrace change and willing to see if the, if it, if more fairness can come in terms of the right decisions being made at the top level. 
And I think the fans in turn are embracing that. It's just in the beginning, it was uh, it was something new. It was something different. Takes time to adjust. But I think slowly but surely, um, uh, it's, it's slowly settling down. And I think I think as of next season, we'll really see it somewhat uh, fully accepted. Okay, now Colin, we've uh, had uh, VAR sort of as I've said sporadically in this country. I think it was uh, the start of the year is when it fully got rolled out. But most of the sort of the biggest uh, confusion that we've had uh, was the uh, there've really been two matches where it's been used extensively and got the most media headlines. The first was the Liverpool West Brom game in the FA Cup at Anfield, but more recently was the whole confusion. Uh, between Huddersfield and Man United when the uh, lines came in at a bit of an odd angle. And you know, what have your thoughts been on VAR in these in these early stages? I think it's... it's it, yeah, OK, there's been teething problems, I think. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, I think you're always going to get the people who moan, the people who are resistant to change. I think that's always going to happen. I think whether people like it or not, I think it's it's here. And once it's here, even if it's on a trial period, it's probably going to be here to stay. And I think it makes sense. Um, I, VAR isn't just the only development happening in the football. I know the FA were looking at um, potentially you know, bringing in sin bins on the, the lower levels of football. Um, and I just think that football's got to, it's got to move into the modern era. And I, I just think that VAR comes with that. So I think, although there's a lot of people who may poo-poo it, um, now it's already here. And it is here. I don't think it's going to go away, no matter what the Champions League do. I think the Premier League is probably the the biggest league in the world, domestic league. Um, and if we're doing it, and I think we will do it, implement it fully. I mean, then it's 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 going to be here for. It's going to stay now. Yeah. Um. And are you a sort of a fan of technology helping officials and referees as a whole? Are you a fan of this whole thing, or would you? rather go back to the the old system of let's just the set platter argument you know we have controversy let's embrace the controversy rather than the right decision well well here's a here's a problem i have matthews because everybody who i you know the, the you know the so-called pundits and experts who i hear having a go at var well okay but the current setup isn't working right the refs get it wrong not just occasionally, but a lot of the time. Now, I'm not blaming the referees. Obviously, the game's very fast. But I think as the game speeded up over the years, the referees haven't, okay? And their eyesight hasn't. And so any little bit of help they need, I think they should be given. Um, so I think the game's changed. I think VAR is got to be a good thing. Okay, James, I'll ask the same question to you. Are you are you pro uh, helping referees? Yes, yes, most definitely. Um, I think it's important at the highest level that, as often as possible, uh, the right, the correct decisions are made. If the referees um, feel that they can receive help in terms of VAR, and that will lead to more consistent decisions being made at the top level, I think everybody will benefit from that. And uh, all different sports have embraced uh, change through the years, and uh, why can't football be any different? Yeah. Now, most of these sort of controversy that's come around in this country have sort of been around. No one seems to know when it's being used. Um, now, I was led to believe because I saw a sort of a clip of the um, Dutch Cup semi-final when it was used, and I, I was led to believe that uh, the referee would go over to the the pitch side TV monitor every time. Um, that he wanted to check something. So and again, is were there these were there was there this same sort of confusion uh, when it first came out? Do fans in the Netherlands know when VAR is being used? Have they got over that stumbling block? Well, in the beginning, and that was quite difficult for them to fathom because it was something new and and double checking and 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 a, and a referee. Um, 
works together with his team. But all credit to the referees as well, especially at the, in the Eredivisie and the Dutch Cup as well. They're extremely transparent in terms of their decisions. Like, for example, when it was first came to light about the Dutch, uh, Dutch Cup semi-final between FC Utrecht and Cambuleraren, the referee, after the match, came out to the local media and stated why the decisions were taken to shed more light and give more transparency as to why those decisions were made. OK, so hang on. So the referee, after the match, came out and explained why he gave why he gave said decisions, why he went back to check. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, as far as I'm aware, as if my memory serves me correctly, Matt, that's what happened because it's the first case. It was the first time that such a case uh, came to light, and in terms of uh, in terms of um, speaking with um, other members of staff to make the right decision for the people in the stadium, it was also a, a, an experience. And um, yeah, it's. Um, I think they were just trying to to be fair as a refereeing team. The, it, it's a, it's no problem at all to give transparency to the local media afterwards as to why uh, as to why uh, certain decisions were made. Right, okay, because that's that's taking me by surprise because I can't. I think I've only ever seen it happen once. Mm. Colin, you might be able to back me up on this, but I think there's there's a rule in the Premier League that referees aren't allowed to aren't allowed to speak to the media afterwards to explain this. I think it's only in my mind it's only ever happened once. And there was Newcastle, uh, Man United Newcastle at Old Trafford, and the referee didn't give a penalty because, and he came out and explained that he was looking the other way. I think there was a, a back pass, and Tim Howard went to clear the ball. The referee turned his head, and these linesmen turned their head because they expected the ball to go downfield. But in the process, Tim Howard fouled and Alan Shearer what would have been a penalty. Colin, do you think that? would be a, a sort of fair compromise because that's what most fans sort of is, you know, they want the referee to know why he gave a decision or why he didn't give a decision. Would that be some sort of fair compromise if a referee came out afterwards and said, I didn't give the penalty because I think Deli Ali dived, so to speak, or I don't think he dived, but it wasn't a foul, so to speak. Um, straight answer. No. Um, I think a lot of people do want that. I think they expect their referees to come out and say, I made this decision because of this, that and the other. Um, however, I wouldn't expect in a boxing match referees to explain why they gave it 118, 115 when the other guy gave it 115, 118. Um, I think the fact with refereeing, there is a little bit of, you know how they see the the action at the time, um, and I, and I just think if you if you do that, then you're just going to put um, you're essentially going to make referees like primary schools and secondary schools where people go online and check their ratings, and it's like oh what have we got here and da, 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 da. and then you know Josie will say oh well you know. Um, guy A is uh, yeah we know what he's all about and then guy C is da, da, da. I, I think to be honest it wouldn't work if they were too open so I'd rather just keep it as it is to be honest because I just think that managers, fans would use it to their advantage okay. and one of the points that we because we, we had this discussion uh, last week but unfortunately it got uh, taking down because of technical reasons, as I've explained. Um, but we mentioned that it's going to be used in the World Cup this year. Um, and now, as far as I'm aware, it's st- VR is still on a trial basis, and it's only being used in certain leagues. So that means that when, because uh, the referees get brought in from all over the world, so there'll be one from Australia, there'll be one from the USA, which I think has VAR, but I'm not sure. Uh, there'll be one from Brazil, there'll be one from Saudi Arabia, one from Russia, from one where some of these referees won't have used VAR before. So it'll be completely new to them and on the biggest stage possible. Um, Colin, do you see that being a problem going forward that for some, for, for there could be a referee whose first use of VAR is the 89th minute of the World Cup quarterfinal? I don't think it's going to be a problem at all, mate, to be honest. Um, I mean, I think... We all remember the travesty of uh, 
you know, Frank Lampard's goal that went clearly over the line against it's Germany. It's only a if you're English. I'm Welsh. It was fine by me. Well, I'm sure it's fine by you, but surely you must admit that uh, it was still a travesty. Oh, yeah. Um, it was yeah, still the wrong decision. Point. Yeah. Um, again, I slightly go back to my previous argument. I mean, you, you know, as you say, you know, you might have a, an Australian referee, I don't know, um, a linesman from North America, other, other linesmen from... Um, Africa, you know, they, no, no, they you, may not. The, 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 they go in teams. They're they're the same group. Like when oh, Howard do they? Webb, yeah, when Howard Webb refereed in 2010, he used a group of English officials. It wasn't one from each country doing a different job. It was an English team. Oh, good God! I oh well, well I I I feel sorry for whoever gets the English clowns um to to uh, referee their games but well in that case i mean okay the language isn't going to be a barrier but i think var has to help because especially in the world cup people say all oh, right well this happened in this situation but in another game where the same thing happened the referee had a different take on it Maybe VAR is going to get rid of that a little bit. So you've got like a bit more of a straighter line in both games to sort of go by. Um, again, I don't think there's anything negative to it. I think it's just a case of resistance to change. You know, people being a little bit old hat. Um, and I think it's just something that, you know, five, ten years down the line, We'll just take for granted. I just think you know that Mike Dean is going to be the English referee for the. You you just know he, he isn't, is, is he? Uh, no, I'm just I'm just saying. You say God, God help whoever's in gets the English oh. referee. Well, it has to be Mike Dean, surely, refereeing the World Cup final. Clattenburg, isn't it? Pun. No, Clattenburg. Do it. No, Clattenburg's gone. He's in. He's in Saudi Arabia now. He's still he's, English, though. Yeah, he's he stopped refereeing. He's like their oh, uh, he's not part of the FA. Of officials. Yeah. So now it's so now it's England's most senior referee. So unless Stuart Atwell's still going around, or or we can get Uriah Rennie out of the requirement. James, I'll so James, I'll ask the same <laughs> question to you. Do you see it being a problem referees using this for the first time? Um, I think they'll all be extremely well briefed beforehand. I think in terms of training, in terms of certain points, and uh, I think they'll all work together in unison to try to make sure that everybody is fully aware of the situation before uh, before they referee their respective games. If I can just elaborate on my point about what happens here in the Netherlands when every now and again referees uh, speak to the local media about decisions they've made, they're extremely transparent about it, but it only happens in the case of a, an extremely big talking point for example a ball that didn't cross the line for example an unjust sending off um, a melee for example there are countless examples here in the Netherlands of uh, for example in high profile games between perhaps Ajax PSV or PSV Feyenoord or um, Utrecht Ajax for example there are countless examples of where the referee has gone on to uh, national media to um to discuss his this, uh, decision and they're spoken to in a way uh, by the journalist in the same way that the journalist would speak to a player or a manager. They ask questions as to why about this and why about that and fair play to the referees. They are all extremely transparent. They never come on to the local media for five minutes and, and not give anything away. They always try to say, well, I didn't give it because of this or I was obstructed by this or I thought leading to this. So uh, so it's quite good on that part. It would be nice if that was to happen in, uh, in the UK as well, in British football for uh, for major talking points. And uh, it just, But it just goes to show how, uh, how different countries approach different things. What uh, referees speaking to... Um, to the Dutch media every now and again here. They've always been transparent. And as I say, it very rarely happens. But when games involving big talking points are played, nine times out of ten, the um, the referee involved will uh, will be involved with the media afterwards and uh, speak to them and, uh, and say what he's got to say about it. 
Colin, I've got some good news. Uh, Mike Dean is not on the FIFA referees list. He's, Fantastic. He's, he's, he, uh, he's too old, apparently. You have to stop being a referee when you're 45, for FIFA, anyway. So now it's Martin, it'll be Martin Atkinson, most likely. As the, okay. Martin Atkinson, Stuart Atwell, Robert Madeley, Michael Oliver, Craig Paulson, Anthony Taylor, or Paul, or Paul Tierney will be one of the English referees. I'm not okay. Hollywood well, Mike Dean. <laughs> okay. Um, now, I no, sorry, sorry, just just some one quick thing. I think yeah, James, you wanted to mention a point. Can I just? Um, I, I'm going to say something that maybe you're going to say is a dreadful thing to say, but of all the tournaments, if you are going to use VAR, the World Cup is a bit boring. Um, it is a bit. It's, it's not cut and thrust, is it? It's basically who doesn't want to lose in a lot of games. And I can't remember the last World Cup tournament I really thought was, mm, you know, this is entertaining. Um, it's, it, it's great and I love it, but I wouldn't want to watch every single game of it. Um, and so I would argue it's quite an easy sort of... Um, foundation to sort of try it on, if you like. Whereas, like you know, the, the, the you know the Premier League's a lot more tricky because you've got a lot more spikiness in it, perhaps. I see, I see what you mean. When it comes to the group stages, yes. I mean, 2010 was just yeah. diabolical when it came. To half half of it was was because apparently nobody understood how to play with the Jabulani. Apparently, that was the, apart from. For some reason, Giovanni Van Bronckhorst, he managed to get it perfectly done with that goal against Uruguay. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, the group stages definitely won't I won't be that interesting. But it'll be the knockouts when it when it all comes out. Um, I just um, I think that sort of ends that debate. Unless anyone has any more final points to say. Yeah, um, two final points from my point of view. In terms of referees, I think uh, Craig Paulson, who was the referee uh, yesterday, I think he's, uh, he's turning into a very good referee. Um, I f- he first came to my attention when I went to watch Arsenal at home to Burnley in 2014. Although it was a routine win for Arsenal that day, he was extremely um, extremely on the money with his decisions and uh, an awful lot of authority, using a lot of common sense, which uh, I found very impressive. In terms of the World Cup group stages, you have to remember that this tournament, in its infancy, has gone from eight has gone from eight teams to sixteen to twenty four to to thirty two, and as of two thousand twenty two to forty eight nations. The World Cup has become so bloated, whereas uh, before you had the the creme de la creme and, and you had, um, you know, do or die. And if you're not performing, you're out on your ear. Whereas now there's such a mix and there's such a, um, a tendency to, to play defensively that I've always said in a World Cup that fortune favours the brave. And when you look at um, when you look at some of those World Cup groups, um, for example, the group of Senegal, uh, Japan, Colombia and Poland, I think that's an extremely interesting group. And also the group of uh, Russia, Egypt, uh, Uruguay and Saudi Arabia. I think that's also going to be an extremely interesting one. But uh, I think the um, the cautiousness comes um, with the not wanting to lose. But you, I think the amount of countries taking part, that doesn't necessarily help the, help the dilemma at all. Yeah, because that happened with the Euros as well when it got expanded to 24 16 went through the groups, went out of the group stages. So it was harder to get sent home than it was to progress. So from, I do take a point on that. From my point of view, Matt and Colin, it's a, it's an international football tournament. It's not a uh, it's not a meeting of uh, of national teams. If so happens you don't qualify for a World Cup, then you have to look uh, you have to look deep down inside as to what went wrong. And try to correct that. Many nations have a um, have different generations coming through, coming coming 
through at different times and that inspires the next generation for example uh, if you look back in history you know the Swede the Swedish team that reached the uh, semi-finals in 1994 if you look at Croatia in 1998 if you look at Uruguay in 2010 you know but the fact remains it's tournament football I believe the World Cup will be full of surprises and um, I think um, I think like in every World Cup, when you get to the, the latter stages, there will be nations that you didn't necessarily expect. And um, I, I am looking forward to it. It should be it should be good fun. But uh, I think that this particular World Cup will be a World Cup full of surprises. James, I don't, I don't think there's going to be many surprises in Holland uh, for the 2018 uh, World Cup, is there? Uh, they, they don't... They don't <laughs> They don't envisage um, supporting a neighbouring uh, nation. Um, if they'd have made the right decision in terms of Ronald Koeman four years ago rather than six weeks ago, then um, then or three weeks ago, sorry, then uh, then they may well be at Russia 2018. But uh, in the case of the, uh, the Dutch national team, they have nobody, they have no one else to blame but themselves. Not just in terms of um, naivety at board level, but also attitude in the qualifying campaigns of Euro 2016 and also World Cup 2018. And we hope now with a uh, competent manager in charge with an awful lot of experience, they can build a team to be able to compete. And hopefully uh, the Netherlands will be part of the Euro 2020 tournament. Hopefully. Right. Um, we're going to move on to something a wee bit more serious now. And... Again, I'm sure the news has reached everyone that uh, Pep Guardiola has been, I don't know if he was fined or if he was warned about wearing his uh, a yellow ribbon, which is uh, uh, solidarity for the Catalonian independence. I think that was, is in particular for one, pers- uh, one p- particular political prisoner. And a lot of the sort of background, and the, not background, the backlash and reaction to it has been that the FA sort of didn't allow him to do it or because it was seen as a political statement and that sort of caused a lot of confusion because the English sort of famously have fought with FIFA for many years. Uh, I, I remember it going back as far as 2011, I'm sure it happened before, about uh, wearing poppies on on shirts and on, you know, there was the compromise that you could wear it on an armband and I just, it just seemed odd that, that this came out and and one of the things, you know, of all the things that Pep Guardiola got in trouble for, it was for wearing a, a ribbon rather than getting into a shouting match with Paul Cook in the tunnel at Wigan at half time. And James, I'm going to come to you first because for the life of me, I don't know. Are there any sort of political movements in Holland that people can, can get around? You know, yeah. Has this, has this been a thing uh, as, you know, have Ajax... Um, wanted to wear something but not been allowed to, you know, anything like that? Uh, in recent memory, no. There's always been uh, uh, solidarity in terms of respecting the rules and not wanting to uh, not wanting to do anything different for the case of being different. I think um, I think in the, the FA are, are making what they deem to be the right decision. And ultimately, whether you agree with Guardiola or not, the manager himself has to take responsibility. Because I read that he's, um, he's um, the rule of uh, in terms of uh, touchline uh, touchline clothing and and what you can and can't wear and all these different kind of things. There's there's stipulations for that and there's uh, there's uh, guidelines and uh, if anyone goes outside of them they run the risk and uh, i think the the manager himself regardless of their uh, of their beliefs or situation has to take responsibility for that yeah and colin what's your been take uh, what's your been take your take been on all this um i i think it's been built up i don't think too many people would have known what the yellow ribbon was about unless the media would have got hold of it um I think the FA have been quite clever on this. Um, the FA, you know, lest we forget, you know, well, not just the FA, but um, the Welsh FA, Scottish FA, we're also in the same boat for, for wearing the poppies, as you say. Um, and the FA basically just said, look, it's, it is a serious issue. Um, and I think... 
because of how they've dealt with FIFA on the poppy issue, which I think was correct because it was important to those countries. They've also taken what Pep's done seriously also um, and said, okay, something that we do stand for here and you, you can have an armband for, um, but there's certain things that you can't. And what Pep did was, I, I think it was, <clears throat> it, it's, he's, he's uh, an English football manager. It's not for him to um, push his beliefs about Catalonia um, to the, the people of Manchester as far as I'm concerned. So I think the FA were right. Okay, but you say, you know, he shouldn't be advertising to the people of Manchester, but, you know, the Premier League is the biggest league in the world. The most watched league in the world has been shouted down from the marketing boards of Sky for many a year. Um, is this, could this not be seen as, you know, he's obviously by the looks of it, pro Catalonian independence as the majority of Catalonians are. Is this not just his way of, you know, this is the biggest way that he could do it. You know, the biggest league in the world, everyone's going to be watching. Now, the man, probably the most famous manager, maybe behind Jose Mourinho, in business now, you know, a big name saying, right, I stand with you. You know, it's not necessarily for the people of Manchester. It's more sort of a global thing and more importantly to the people of Catalonia. Uh, Catalonia isn't a country. Catalonia state, whatever you you know what you know what I mean. Well, yeah, I know, tell that but, to the but, people of Catalonia that they're not a country. It's a, it's a touchy uh, I, I I know exactly, but um, you know where where does it end if you let those sort of things happen? I mean, what a Leeds United allowed to wear, um, you know, a Yorkshire independence. Banned, I personally you know, and it sort of goes back to um, the Colin Kaepernick kneeling controversy. You know, it's a yeah. silent, it's a silent protest. He's not banging. He's not, you know, going into Spanish tapas restaurants and saying Spanish bad, bad Catalonians good sort of thing. It, it's a silent, it's a silent protest. If you want to call it a protest, um, I think the difference is. The poppies was a sign of respect. What Pepper's done is promoting a movement, whether it be political, social, or whatever. Um, I think that's very different to the poppy situation. And I think that's where the line has been drawn by the FA. Okay, James, your take? Uh, I go back to my previous point that um, guidelines are there for managers in terms of what they can and can't wear in terms of uh, clothing, in terms of ribbons, in terms of um, indications of their beliefs or, or in terms of support. And I go back to my original point earlier on in, in our podcast tonight that the manager, there are guidelines set by the FAA for a reason. And regardless of, of what... Um, of what a manager's beliefs are or, or or what they want to achieve. They have to take responsibility for what they do. And if, for example, they've uh, overruled uh, the guidelines and they've, uh, they've broke the rules in that respect, then uh, the FA must hold, them co- must hold them to account. Okay. Now, and again, you know, this isn't a, this is a, pol- a political message, excuse me, but it's not sort of in the country is now. James, you'll have to correct me on this, but the Netherlands, isn't that a sort of conglomerate of loads of different masses of land? Like, I know Groningen is like a region sort of thing. You're, am I right in saying that? Uh, I got my for, geography wrong. No, Friesland uh, have ad- advocated in- independence in the past, uh, but it's not as um, it's not as overzealous as other countries in other regions. Okay, but I must, so, I must yeah. say that the Netherlands, the, 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 the togetherness of the country is quite um, is quite apparent. That, for example, all the Dutch come together, especially in, in major tournaments. In, also, in terms of celebrating the National Day of Kings Day, which is now twenty uh, seventh of April, 
where street parties are on the streets and everybody wears orange and regardless of where you come from or whether you're born and raised here you're you're um you're uh, you're encouraged to partake in the celebrations and uh, i must say from all the in all the years i've been here i've, I've never um heard any opposite opinions about that and there's been quite a lot of togetherness in terms of the country uh, coming together yeah but what, but what i'm saying is if theoretically and i've got now the sort of 12 provinces up if say gelderland you know if there was a movement for independence from gelderland and a team from the province of gelderland started putting messages on their shirt that's you know it's that's an internal thing something in their country whereas pep is doing it sort of from from abroad it's an outside perspective i'm just thinking would does that change anything for you doesn't make it right Okay. Okay. Uh, no, 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 but no, but no, yeah, but no, no, sorry. no, sorry. I, um, sorry to put in. It's just I feel quite strongly about it. I mean, if you allow things like that, there's it could get very, very messy. I mean, what if Aguero has some sort of teacher supporting um, the Falklands becoming the Malvinas? Um, Robert Snodgrass playing for Aston Villa, supporting Scottish independence. It's it's just a license for violence. It's just uh, I don't see how any good can come of it. Um, I mean, if Pep is that way inclined, fine. If he wants to give him some funds, fine. If he wants to fight for the, the Catalonian right, fine. But you know, Manchester ain't the place to do it. I don't think. So, so you, so this is more of a, you know, it's not you, Pep. It's a, it's a principle sort of thing. Yeah, I think, I think he's, um, I, I, I personally see it as him being a bit big-headed, to be honest. Okay. Thinking he's, he's great, and uh, I'm so fantastic. I can send a message. I mean, at the end of the day, if, I don't know the manager of Lincoln City. Um, wore a similar armband. I don't think we'd be talking about it. Okay, I, I think that I think that, that more or less wraps up the the serious side of the Marathon <laughs> Post podcast. Hopefully sorry, that was getting a bit deep, wasn't it? Sorry. Yeah, hope, yeah hopefully this won't uh, happen too much. I mean, come the uh, 29th of March 2019, we won't all. Hopefully, we'll avoid the whole Brexit debate at some stage. But anyway. Um, now, this is the part where hopefully it's going to be a future segment on the show where similar to the game podcast where they ask Gab Marcotti the traditional Italian question. Uh, we now turn to James to say, what's been happening in the Netherlands this week? We really should have a jingle set up you know, with the sound of clogs in the background. Yeah, yeah. Something imagines that a jingle sounds like a great idea to give... Uh, to give the uh, listeners um, an idea as to what happened this last weekend, well, Ajax dropped two points drawing at home to Arda Den Haag. I was at the game and uh, a, a draw was a fair result. Uh, Arda Den Haag defended really, really well, came with a game plan and stuck to their guns. Their captain, Aaron Mayers, had an absolutely fantastic game, won every ball, headed danger away and it was a fantastic performance from him. Uh, PSV subsequently won uh, a little bit later on the Sunday away in Rotterdam against Feyenoord and now have a seven-point lead over Ajax going into the last nine games. Uh, looking ahead to next weekend's games, Ajax are away to Vitesse and PSV Eindhoven entertain FC Utrecht who have won their last four league games. So that should be quite interesting. One of the results of the weekend were, was Excelsior Rotterdam winning in Friesland at, uh, against Heerlen Veen. Uh, Excelsior Rotterdam are managed by former Motherwell uh, player Mitchell van der Gaag. And he's done an absolutely tremendous job uh, to have such a very, very small budget, a very, very small stadium and, uh, and not having a lot to work with. He's managed to get his squad into 10th place in the Eredivisie. And uh, that's that's quite an achievement. Uh, trouble still ahead for FC Twente, who won the league in 2010. They're currently in the uh, in the relegation zone. I think they'll get out of it. But um, here in the Netherlands, the team that finished finishes last place, and that's currently Sparta Rotterdam, uh, 
goes directly uh, to the division below. And then the team that finishes 16th and 17th take part in what they call the promotion relegation playoffs. So if you finish 16th or 17th here in the Eredivisie, you you have a second chance of uh, of avoiding relegation and staying uh, in the Eredivisie for next season. Okay. Um, just one question, because uh, we were talking sort of earlier about Arsenal and you know the, the massive decline that's going on there. And I was literally just flicking through the internet whilst you were talking. And I've seen that Ajax were knocked out of the... This is sort of old news to you, I'm sure. Ajax knocked out of the Europa League at the playoff stage, you know, not even making the group stage. Is, is that seen as a disaster within Dutch football that the mighty Ajax are, at this stage of the season are not in some European competition? Uh, well, it was a shock considering that only um, only three months before they played in the final of the Europa League. Awesome. I, I was at both home legs for the first the Champions League qualifier against Nice, where they drew 1-1 in France and drew 2-2 at home in Amsterdam and subsequently went out on away goals. But if you were completely fair and objective about it, as someone who was at the game, Nice just about shaded it. In the uh, in the following Europa League qualifier against um, Rosenborg, they lost uh, lost one 0 at home, and it was a uh, an awful result for them. And uh, there was uh, there was hope in Trondheim in the return leg, but unfortunately things didn't come to pass. And it wasn't the best start for Marcel Kaiser, and uh, that subsequently um, meant a. Um, a difficult start to the league, uh, losing to Hedekles Almano on the opening day. It's been stop, start, stop, start this season with uh, a new manager in place back in uh, back in the end of December. But um, there's still uh, a seven-point gap with uh, with nine games remaining. Ajax also have to go to Eindhoven on the 15th of April, so it's not completely over. But um, it's looking like likely that PSV uh, may well win the title, yes. Colin, going back to what James said earlier, the idea of a promotion-relegation playoff, I think they do it in Scotland as well. Is that something you want to see in England? I quite like the idea of it, personally. Um, for all my interest in VAR and, and technologies and things... I think that's one step too far. Um, it sounds a little bit Mickey Mouse to me. Sorry, that's just, no, no, that's, that's that's just that's my that's personal that's opinion. I'm, I'm not not too keen that, on that, really. Uh, yeah, that, that's fine. Um, I'm just, James, are you pro? I mean, obviously, this is something you would have had to have adapted to. Yeah. Over there. Is that like, are you a fan of that or do you just go along with it? Well, I would prefer for the Netherlands to adapt to the English style of the last three teams get relegated. And if that's relegated by one goal, then that's a shame. One thing you also have to factor in is the Dutch first division, which is a division below the Eredivisie, where they also have um, uh, what they call, uh, what they what translates into uh, period champions, where the um, of the 38 games, it's split into nines, uh, into four sections of nine games. And every nine games, the best performing team at the end of that run uh, gains uh, a place to get into contention to um, take part in the promotion playoffs at the end of the season. So that can also be a little bit strange. But it also comes down to investment and comes down to money because uh, in the lower regions of the, um, of the first division, there's... Um, there's uh, not much money. There's also um, uh, the reserve teams of Arsed, um and uh, Utrecht and um, and Ajax as well, also playing uh, also playing in that division to gain competitive experience. So it's uh, it's a little bit it's a little bit different than than the rest, but uh, it's an acquired taste and takes a bit of getting used to, really. That four champions or four winners thing—that's something I'm going to have to wrap my head around. In a future edition, when um, yeah. when I have more energy, because that that's facet that that's just fascinating. You have you will have to explain that to the the non-Dutch followers because that yeah. again that's something that's fascinating. Yeah, but just... we 
have run out of time on this edition of the Man on the Post podcast, unless uh, there's any general talking points that anyone wants to bring up. Um, I just wanted to correct myself, if I may. I mentioned that uh, young, uh, uh, the reserve team of RZ play in the first division. They actually currently play in the uh, in the second division. It's the reserve team of, um, uh, of PSV and, U- and Utrecht and Ajax that play in the first division under the Eredivisie. Just to correct myself and to make sure that everything's uh, everything's completely transparent and correct. Yep, that's fine. Colin, over to you. Anything you want to say? Uh, no, just um, maybe a. Again, just a shout out to guys uh, listening here that, you know, if you've got any uh, suggestions for future topics, um, please, you know, suggest them, send them to us at, at Man on the Post on Twitter. Um, yeah, happy to uh, receive those and discuss them. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, okay. if you have any uh, further topics that you want to bring up uh, or any questions or just general i i not ideally not complaints because but oh no no something constructive criticism let's have it along those lines but uh until next time this has been the man on the post podcast uh thank you very much for listening and it's a goodbye from colin goodbye it's a goodbye from james goodbye and it's a goodbye from me and always remember to keep your man on the post Yeah, people will probably look at me thinking he's an undercover copper or something. <laughs> Can I get two pints of fosters, please, mate? Got to put a, um, I just got to put a sort of no entry thing on my uh, bedroom door just to make sure no one comes in. I've had that on a few on a few other podcasts. I've done. So are you in a shared house, Matt? Then. Um. Well, no, I'm living with parents. So I'm of the generation that can't afford a house. And we're done. That's lovely. That's nice. Hopefully, yeah. hopefully, hopefully we got it recorded. Yeah, because that's another hour of my. That's another hour of the week that I don't want to just waste it. Well, not waste it. It's been a good discussion, but.